Think your job's stressful? Try being an emergency response physician at the Mayo Clinic, one of the top hospitals in the U.S. that sees some pretty extreme emergencies. Dr. Richard Winters has been responding under pressure in chaotic situations for a long time, and it's taught him valuable lessons about decision-making and leadership. In his book, You're the Leader, Now What? Richard distills his knowledge into simple frameworks and practical tactics that can help us lead our colleagues and communities with confidence and make decisions with clarity. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to make it better. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. I have to say, I was surprised by how applicable the lessons from the medical world are to everyday situations. I think you're going to enjoy our conversation with Dr. Richard Winters. We'll jump into it right after this. So I'm Richard Winters. I am an emergency physician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I am also the Director of Leadership Development for the Mayo Clinic Care Network. I practice as an emergency physician, took care of patients actually last night until 2 a.m., have a great family, and recently wrote a book about leadership called You're the Leader, Now What?, which was a Wall Street Journal bestseller, thankfully. So Richard, we, t- we tend to start these shows with what we call the lightning round, so it's kind of 11 11- you know, A or B questions. We write them just for you. So, yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> so sounds like you're ready to play. So here, yeah, yeah. here we go. Yeah. Hug or handshake? Both. Process or analysis? Yeah, this is a great question. Process. React or respond? Understand the reaction, but step back and wait to respond. Queen Elizabeth or Winston Churchill? Hmm. They're both from England. <laughs> Warrior or sage? Sage. FDR or LBJ? They're both from the United States. <laughs> Hard, I've, I've got one that's going to trip you up then in a minute. Uh, <laughs> harmony or dissonance? It takes dissonance and harmony working together to make dissonance uh, wonderful. Dalai Lama or Gandhi? Yeah, both wonderful individuals. <laughs> Inspire or command? Inspire, and then command through inspiration. Nice. Mentor or coach? Coach. And finally, hope or courage? Yeah, the two of those together. Great, hope and courage. Okay, nice. Thanks for playing. (laughs) We didn't take (laughs) the or too seriously, but I appreciate the the, the (laughs) nuance there. Richard, presumably you're not short on things to do given, you know, the work that you're doing at the Mayo Clinic. So why write this book? I mean, you've got plenty of things going on. So one of the things, I guess I didn't mention my introduction, is somewhere after I trained to be an emergency physician, I went and got a degree in business and then also did graduate training in executive coaching. And it was perfect because it was along with I'm taking care of patients and then going to meetings and why am I not being so effective? I started learning from the MBA and the coaching program the reasons why I wasn't being so effective. And as an offshoot of that, I started coaching healthcare leaders, so people like myself. And I started seeing patterns over and over again of individuals who were I mean, really great, clinically loved by their colleagues. And then as they would get in a, the meeting with, they were not meeting, they were telling, and they would 
face these situations that were really quite complex and not know how to process this. Not knowing how to process it, but from the perspective of how to inspire colleagues and get colleagues to work together, not doing very well at one-to-one conversations, and even as they were thinking about themselves, having some challenges. And so I could either say the same thing over and over again. I like to coach, and I think teaching is important, but I thought it would be more effective to write a book of all these sort of teachings, and that way we can get to the coaching part. One of the things that you talk about is you describe leaders as a sort of decision-making robot. What does that actually mean? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think we're all decision-making robots. So I went to bed last night at at 4 a.m. I had a shift. And then my alarm went off at 8 a.m. And the decision was, do I snooze or do I get up? And so kind of robotically, I decided, actually, I I have to get up. There's things to do. What I decided to put on to wear, I went to the grocery store to get some milk and drove there. There were a lot of things I did robotically. And then that is similar to as we're in leadership positions. I mean, even so last night as I was seeing patients, there are things I just do instantly and robotically. They're like these reflexes. As I'm in meetings with colleagues, there's also these reflexes that come up. And so we tend to respond reflexively and robotically. Works sometimes, but oftentimes as we're dealing with these really complex situations, it's, it's a barrier. You know, one of the popular things going around right now is the concept of habits and just sort of training yourself that like when this happens, I just do this next thing. You've seen James Clear with the atomic habits and things like that. There's also this notion of checklist, which I can't remember the author's name, but he wrote the checklist manifesto. Yeah, Atul Gawande. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I mean, you must find that in your own work in the emergency room. There must be checklists you go through. It sounded like you had some habits this morning about I'm going to stick to my routine and get up at a certain time. Do you feel like that kind of consistency is critical to leadership? There's great thing that this brings up, and that is the sorts of challenges that we're facing. And so there are some challenges that really all, all we need is a checklist. And so, I mean, interestingly enough, we had a trauma last night, and we have very multiple steps of checklists with multiple people, and we know what to do in those sorts of situations. And today I have checklists of things that I'm going to do, and that works out quite well. And I love Atomic Habits, great book. But there are times that those habits, those checklists, they explode, they stop working. How to have a checklist when everyone's disagreeing. How to have a checklist when the environment is evolving and volatile and uncertain. And so during those times, I think those checklists, while we can use them in some ways, they tend not to be as supportive as we'd want, and we need to approach things in different ways. To add to that, it's like a checklist is something that is very robotic and you can just go down and do, but you're also dealing with human beings and you're dealing with people who have emotions and people who have reactions on top of that. So when you talk about people agreeing or disagreeing, that's definitely part of it. How can we automate ourselves where we don't have to think about things too much, but still have enough empathy to make sure that the decisions are the right decisions, just not the quick decisions? Yeah, I mean, I think we're dancing, right? So there are times where the checklist is very helpful. And actually for a lot of my day and as I'm getting things done, it's quite helpful. But then as I go out into the world of colleagues, I find that maybe it isn't so helpful. And And if I approach things like a checklist, I'm going to find that things aren't working. And so... I love this, the analogy of playing chess, and there's, I'm not, I am not at all good at playing chess. My understanding is that individuals who play chess and can see like five moves ahead can beat someone who can play chess, who can see like me, maybe one move ahead, try to figure out the move. And those who can, who can see like 10, 20, 30 moves ahead, like these are the geniuses of chess. And in, in many ways, that's like the checklist. And I think for many of us as leaders, we approach things like that chess game where we think, okay, 
this is what we're going to do. We need to do this change and we should approach this and this is the first step. And then these people are going to respond in this way or they might respond in this way. And if they do that, we're going to do this. We kind of think in terms of this dynamic algorithmic chess match kind of checklist, but things don't work out that way. And because as we're trying to decide what to do and as our colleagues are trying to decide what to do, a new chessboard appears, their pieces start taking our pieces, things are moving independently. And yet we have leaders who don't recognize that. And so there is this kind of reflexive, you know, how do I make, make sure on the one hand I'm able to use checklists, but on the other hand I'm able to identify those moments where I need to step back and perceive things from different ways and approach things in different ways. In the lightning round, when you were asked, react or respond, you had a fairly dialed-in answer for that. So I wonder if you could <laughs> unpack that for us. And how does that relate to, you know, 2 a.m. trauma calls? How do we deal with stress? Yeah, as you're saying, react or respond. In the moment, I'm like thinking in my mind, well, this is my reaction. Then I was like, wait, okay, <laughs> let's step back here a little bit and let's, let's consider this a little bit more. And there was a little bit of pause there also. And so I see a patient who comes in with chest pain and I look at them and I hear their voice and the way that they're telling me things. And there are reactions, I mean, reflexes that come up where I'm thinking that this is what's going on. On the other hand, I know I have blind spots and I know that I have biases. And so I need to really pay attention to make sure that I'm not anchoring on those initial kind of instincts. And then I'm stepping back and listening to the nurses and the pharmacists and the family members and watching as things are going on in the room as I'm making the decision and continuing to think about the case. And so it is that thing of like using the reflexes to the advantage because we can't be always considering all the possibilities. We need to make decisions, but on the other hand, still remaining open to make sure that we have an anchor done, an incorrect assumption. Yeah. So I appreciate you brought up chess because I do play chess, although I'm still quite bad at it. But there's a, an activity that people engage in called chess boxing, where you box around and then during the break, you have to come to the middle and you make some chess moves, which is sort of this interesting contrast of mental styles, obviously. And when I think about the reacting and the responding, you know, it kind of plays into that a little bit. I think of, I'm trying to imagine you last night in the emergency room, like you've got these complex decisions, all these multiple variables coming at you. You know, these are high stakes decisions and they have to be made quickly. And your book kind of, I think it, it comes at leadership kind of from that angle mostly. But you, obviously you meet with a ton of other business leaders. You meet with a lot of folks. I'm wondering how you think about how leadership styles vary based on different kinds of decision-making environments. Mm, yeah. So first of all, I can't like, the chess boxing, what is this? And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking about in high school, there's like chess club. That it would have gone away instantly if people were beating each other up. Is that the, yeah. so? The people who are playing chess actually go around and they like punch each other and then go back and play chess. Uh, for the pictures I've seen, I think it's more boxers that add chess to the mix than the other okay. way around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I did that in high school, I, there would have been a lot of missed punches. I think on both sides. Um, yeah, I mean, so this is the key thing about leadership: is it it needs to be dynamic. And so let's consider those. So. COVID happens. Oh, geez, what's going on? And over, you know, across the sea, we're, we're hearing about these infections. That's never going to uh, affect. Oh, wait, it is affecting us. And then all of a sudden our colleagues are getting sick. And so does this take a leader who's going to be able to have meetings over a period of months to decide what to do? No, this takes leaders who are going to be able to stand up, make decisions, decisions when they don't know all the information and help people move forward. That can be very comfortable for some individuals. On the other hand, so now that we're coming out of the pandemic and things are evolving, do you still like just make decisions without including colleagues? Do you still act 
as you were as we were here in the midst of this chaos? And the answer is no. You're not going to be a good leader in those cases. You need to step back then and now approach leadership from this perspective where you're really creating this sort of shared sense of reality, gathering the perspectives of individuals before you move forward. And so our best leaders can do both. And in a given day, there may be decisions where a leader just needs to decide. And there may be decisions where a leader needs to step back and gain more consensus and understanding and perspective taking before moving forward. So in the book, you talk about this one doctor who was an amazing doctor, but like all of the nurses would like hide when he would come by. And so like he kind of thought he was a team player, but he wasn't necessarily being a team player. And I think this goes for anybody in a leadership position. A lot of people are thrown into leadership positions when they are experts in something else, right? How do you coach these people and how do you make them aware of the situation without kind of deflating them or removing their area of expertise and getting them to focus on the other aspects of what they need to do now in their job. Yeah. And and so the story is Victor Trastic, who's a thoracic surgeon, really a lovely individual, very effective leader. But early in his career, you know, as a thoracic surgeon, he could get things done. He could save lives. He would go in and take care of the sickest patients and turn them around. However, as he was walking the floors of the hospital, the nurses were running away. The residents were afraid. And it was because this sort of command and control, I'm the captain of the ship. This is what needs to be done. You know, you do this, you, you do that. It was not working so well. And, and then at that time, thankfully, there was a nursing leader who approached and says, you know, Dr. Trastic, I don't know what your, your goal is here, but we're going to get much better patient care if we're working together as a team. And he had that insight to be able to see what was happening. And then to change, and he ended up becoming the CEO of Mayo Clinic in Arizona. He's now currently coaching as emeritus staff. He's coaching many of our leaders internally. You know, talking about the expert who can just go in and get things done. As you're saying, you know, within with physicians, I can think about engineers and many of these sort of like technical sorts of specialties. People just go in and get stuff done, and then all of a sudden you become a leader. But you need to step back. And so, how do I coach individuals like that? Exactly what that nurse said. You know, what is your goal here? You know, you're saying that you need to be the captain of the ship, but what we're experiencing here is a bit of a mutiny. So how would you like to approach this? You know, what are you seeing? What's your goal here? What are you afraid might occur? And then just asking questions like this. And these individuals, the reason they're so good at operating and getting things done, they're also, in my experience, they tend to be very good at looking at themselves and figuring out ways of changing to move forward. You know, in the book, you have this great quote from Brian Eno when you're talking about the concept of senius. Is that how you, pro- or is that how you pronounce it? Senius. Senius. Genius, Genius. versus oh, senius. Got it. That was the reference. Yeah, senius. And the, uh, just for the listeners, the quote from Brian Eno is, senius leverages the intelligence and intuition of a whole scene. It is the communal form of the concept of genius. And I'm wondering if you could take us back to those early days of COVID, because I just That's a very fascinating thing that you have some direct experience with and what it must have been like when you're trying to collect all these data points from all the different people in your immediate hospital as well as others. But then you also are still a physician and people are dying, like stuff is happening and you've got to make decisions. So you're having to like balance your command of the situation to save lives with trying to use the communal genius, if you will, to collect all this information. Like, What was that like? How did you navigate that? So again, this is a time where we can't have, you know, committees of committees to try to figure out what to do moving forward. And so our CEO quite wisely decided that we're going to appoint individuals 
within their area of expertise and empower them to make decisions and then support them in moving forward. And so the CEO and the senior leaders, there were decisions they had to make about the finances and about the way things were working. They appointed infectious disease to deal with some of the details of you know, how we're approaching COVID within our population. The individuals within critical care had areas of expertise, emergency medicine. And so you can see how that can be done in, as a silo, where individuals may be making decisions in those times and not necessarily coming together. I think the key thing in my experience at Mayo Clinic is culture. And as we look at organizations and those organizations that can respond well during these really mo- these moments of crisis are those organizations that have a culture that brings people together. And so to me, this concept of culture is values plus behavior. And within our organization, that's the way leaders are appointed. It's not that they can write the values on the PowerPoint slide and on the screensavers but they're actually embodying it. And so we have the teamwork and respect and innovation. We have multiple, you know, all these values that, that come together at these moments of crisis. And while people may be making decisions alone or empowered to make decisions for us as a group, we're coming together within that culture. As part of a culture, though, when you're coming together to make decisions, inevitably there's going to be disagreement and that can, you know, at its worst, become conflict. How do you lead through a conflict within your organization? Yeah, I mean, so I think conflict can occur no matter what we're talking about, whether it's the most complex situation or the simplest thing. And so I think as a leader, it's important to understand what sort of a decision that we're making. And for me, the framework that's very helpful for me that I go to is the Kinevin framework. And that's something that was created by David Snowden. And Kinevin is C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. And so this gives us sort of the domain of the decision that we're making. And so as a leader, as I'm putting my agenda together, as I'm thinking about the decisions, I'm thinking about this framework. And so there are decisions that are clear. There are things that we do that are clear. As colleagues, collectively, we would all agree that this is a best practice. And so as I sat down in my chair, you sat down in your chair the same way. You sat down bottom first. You didn't go head first, right? We all agree that this is the right, the right way, bottom first. As a patient comes into, again, the emergency department and there's a trauma, yes, we have 20 people and there's it's a multiple processes that are going on, but it's clear for all of us what we're going to be doing. And if someone is not following the steps that to us are best practice that we all collectively think, the conflict is clear and it, we're going to come back to, you know, sort of the communal knowledge. Um, so then there are things that are complicated. And so the things that are complicated are the things that we love, each of us loves, because this relies upon our expertise. And so if I hand many orthopedic surgeons electrocardiogram, like a, a cardiac tracing, they're going to look at it and they're going to be like, I don't know what this is. And they're going to maybe read it and call the cardiologist because the cardiologist, that's their domain of expertise. If I hand the cardiologist an x-ray that shows broken bones, they're going to say, I don't see a heart here. And they're going to ask the orthopedic surgeons. And so within these areas of complication, we have expertise and we look to the experts to make those decisions. The interesting thing is that experts often disagree. And so let's say I have high blood pressure and I may go to three or four different doctors. They all agree I have high blood pressure. They all agree we should lower the blood pressure, but their way forward may be different. Some may say, you know, diet and exercise. Some may say, do this medicine. Some may do another medicine. But we do rely upon this expertise, which is based on science and study and experience and those sorts of things. This stuff, though, is easy because we all agree upon the inputs and the outputs. We all agree about what might happen, and there's actually a good probability that things will happen. Leaders, on the other hand, as we're commonly facing the decisions 
for which we are leaders, we're on this other side where actually we don't agree upon the things to consider. We don't agree upon the possible outcomes. And so in this, there's, there's this area of complexity. And within complexity, you know, we've heard of VUCA, this volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous situations. We actually need to understand multiple different perspectives. And as we started out the rapid fire questions, you talked about analysis or process. I got to tell you, I have a lot of in-depth analysis about a lot of things. I don't know if you've gathered from this, but I know a lot of stuff. But on the other hand, I have some huge blind spots. And so my analysis may be good, but I be mis- may be missing out on things. And so what's best in those situations to get a bunch of different people together with their own analysis, their own experiences, their own perspectives, and put this stuff together so we can start to see around each other's blind spots. And then the final thing, as we were talking about at the beginning of COVID, which is, are these moments of crisis or, or chaos where yeah, we don't have time to come together and create these shared perspectives? The leader just needs to decide. And now, in my mind, I may have this sort of virtual board of directors. I can sort of think about how others might approach the situation, but I need to decide. And the key thing, and I love this out of the Kinevin framework, is what oftentimes happens is, as we come together, as groups of individuals around a topic, what oftentimes happens is we're confused. We don't agree upon whether it's clear, whether it's complicated, whether it's complex, whether it's chaos. We're talking about things and someone's like, I don't know why we're talking about this. We already have a best practice for this. And then another individual's like, I don't know if you know who I am, but I've been here and I've done that. And I can just tell you based on my experience because I'm the expert. Then you have someone else who's thinking, you know what? I think things are changing and we need to come together. Our best leaders can kind of think about these sorts of situations. And I think the big risk here as we talk about this and for a lot of organizations is, I love this concept of best practice, which is by definition, past practice. And so oftentimes when we're facing these sorts of things and we have our checklists, we're relying on best practice, not realizing actually that these best practices no longer hold. Our best practices are by definition past practices, and maybe we need to look at things in a different way. Maybe we need to come together and and examine things in a way that's going to be more effective. Do you think that became more noticeable with COVID and with everything that was going on in terms of kind of throwing the old out and having to reiterate and define leadership in a new way? Yeah. And, and I mean, I think this is one of the enjoyments of lifetime are these sorts of things. And I'm, I'm saying enjoyment is it's not, it's very painful. But one of the opportunities that we have as we look at financial crashes, as we look at technologies that are progressing as we look at changes in populations and politics are these moments of really kind of crisis and chaos that allow us in some ways to move things forward that would have been quite different. And so one example is telemedicine. There's been the technology, but, you know, we talk about telemedicine and then all of a sudden we have COVID and we can't meet in person. And so now this propels this like technology forward as a possible solution and there's a lot of innovation that occurs in those moments and those those organizations that can come together under this shared values with you know within their culture and innovate these could be really wonderful times even albeit trying times we'll be right back after this word from our sponsors Meredith I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product AG1 have you tried it Meredith Yeah, I've tried it, and I have to say I look forward to taking it every day now. Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super research drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need— 
prebiotics, probiotic. It's good for gut health. You're keeping your immune system tuned up and just like feeling your best. The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive. Yeah. And you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient. And it's also so much more affordable. And it actually tastes good too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee. And when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best. So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering and get your AG1 today. That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now back to the show. I'm glad you made this distinction earlier about the difference between complex and complicated. Because one of our previous guests, John Mado, last season talks about that a little bit in his book as well. You know, and complex are these multivariate problems where the outcome's uncertain, the issues aren't clear, whereas complicated is something like you know, certain types of engineering or something where the problem space is fairly well known, but there's a lot of things that have to be thought through. You know, as you, as you mentioned technology and what's happening with telemedicine, it seems to me there's a possibility that a lot of things that we've thought of as being complicated will be replaced by AI, which to your point, AI will reflect best practices but it, those best practices will be past practices. So we'll see how effective AI ends up being. But I'm wondering, you know, I'm sure you've been thinking or staying up a little bit with the stuff that's going on around ChatGPT and sort of the explosion of AI right now. And how do you think that will affect sort of first off medicine, but then secondarily kind of leadership in general? You know, with AI, it's, it's another great example of a very disruptive technology. And so how wonderful. And it is all of those things at once. It is confused, it is chaos, it is complex, it's complicated, and it's clear. You know, I can use Python, the programming language, and it's clear that if I run this sort of statement, this is going to happen. And there are individuals who have expertise in creating the machine learning and, and the AI and, and running these sorts of things. But from the perspective of the data that we're looking at and the nuances and all the various perspectives and what we're analyzing, you start to area, enter the areas of complexity and chaos. And so how does this stuff come together? Within our organization, with the Mayo Clinic, we're very much focused on artificial intelligence and machine learning and see this as the future. And on the one hand, highly innovative. And then on the other hand, really thinking about, geez, what are we missing here? What are the things that we're overseeing? What are the biases that we might put into this? And how can we catch ourselves as we're moving forward? And that's something you highlight in the book. You talk about encouraging disagreement to get better perspective and diverse teams, like people with different experiences, different perspectives and backgrounds. It's not an instinctual thing for most human beings to encourage disagreement or to welcome people offering a critical view of your ideas. But how can we do that better and bring that to our professional lives and maybe also to our personal lives so we can make better decisions? So what we were talking about is you're talking about John Mieta, and he comes from the school of design thinking. And you're thinking about complexity and complicated. And design thinking has wonderful ways of approaching challenges. And then on the other hand, there's Kinevin, which has another way of approaching complexity and making sense of things. 
And each of these things, I would bet as we move forward, are going to evolve. And so to your question of how do we kind of keep learning and staying in touch and evolving, I think that is by remaining open and understanding that each of these things that we're thinking, each of these ways that we're approaching things right now is at once effective and then also likely ineffective at the same time. And to be open to learning. And so for myself, a key thing for me is if you look at my Twitter stream, if you look at my social media, I'm not following a lot of physicians. I'm following a lot of individuals from other kind of professions and other ways of thinking. And so I think, again, this is it's just keeping this internal of like, yes, this is what's working, but this is always evolving. And again, best practice versus past practice. How can I think about things in new ways? Within medicine, one thing that we're facing right now, and I think it's not just medicine, but it is burnout. And as we think about burnout, okay, okay, good. Everyone's people are burned out. Look at this. Look at all these people are burned out. And so now we've identified that, and we're thinking, okay, so now what? Like, what do we do with that? And so now we're thinking about well-being. One of the wonderful things about well-being, as I've tried to understand the research, is that is you go into these journal articles about well-being, and the people who are talking about well-being don't even agree upon what well-being is. And so even within these like frameworks of our own well-being, we don't yet have the knowledge and understanding clearly about what's going on and what the definitions are, and things just evolve. You do talk about the six dimensions of well-being in the book, though. Could you lay those out for us? Yeah, yeah. And so again, so like these frameworks are helpful for me to think of because they start to develop a language for me. So one of the things I'll do is I give these talks to our new physician leaders. Anytime we have a new hire who's a physician or scientist that comes into Mayo Clinic, I give this talk. And one of the questions I'll ask is, how many of you can name the six causes of metabolic acidosis? And all these you know, doctors raise their hand. And how many of you can name the 12 cranial nerves? And they'll all raise their hand. How many of you can name the six components of eudaimonic well-being? <laughs> what? <laughs> they're all like, what? No, no one knows. Like, they're not saying that. And so we have these individuals who know, like, the most intricate pathophysiology, and they can do these amazing things. And yet they don't even have the language to describe their own well-being. And so I think it's important for us to develop that language. And one of the things I like is from eudaimonic or psychological well-being, Carol Riff, she's out of University of Wisconsin at Madison. And as a physician, I like mnemonics. And so I put it in the form of a, a mnemonic, which pagers. And so it's kind of weird. I don't know how many of you, do, you, like, do any of you still wear pagers? No. Probably not, right? <laughs> I keep it in the drawer with my CDs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And so even physicians, there's not a lot of people wearing physicians, but at Mayo, we're still wearing, like last night, I was wearing three pagers and also had a Vocera phone. Like I have a pager for the resuscitation, pager for my priority stuff, and then a, a pager for telemedicine. It's interesting. But, anyways, pagers. And so P in pagers is purpose. And so from a well-being perspective, being aligned with the purpose, the values of the organization of those individuals that we're working alongside. And so A is autonomy. And autonomy isn't like, you know, South Park where, you know, I don't care what you say, I do what I want. It's not like I'm going to go in there and make change. It's that people are hearing me and my voice is being heard. And that this is being considered as we're making changes and as processes are, are moving forward. It may not be exactly what I thought, but I know that my voice made a difference. And so the sense of autonomy. And G is, is personal growth. And so the sense that, that I can be better tomorrow than I am today, and that I'm learning new things, and that I'm evolving. This isn't static. This is growth. And then E is environmental mastery. And that's like, do I have the resources I need within my environment to do my job to get things done? If I'm clicking the button on my electronic health record to order a blood count, and it's not being drawn, I'm not getting the results back, it starts to like 
I, what's going on here? And so do I have the things I need? And we talked back to COVID. We didn't have masks. We had shortages of gowns. We had shortages of medication. We had shortage of knowledge, all this sort of environmental mastery stuff. And we can be during times where things are scarce, but are we coming together to acknowledge the scarcity and then still figuring out how we can maneuver moving forward? And so then R is the relationships that we have with our colleagues, and we want positive relations because negative ones aren't so good. And then the S in pagers is self-acceptance. And this is one of these things for me that's one of the cool things about coaching is I have these, get to have these one-to-one conversations with individuals in all these different areas, but very high in the organization, middle and low in the organization. And I see at all levels our ability to accept that we are as humans fallible and that we make mistakes. And then to be able to accept that and take that learning in and move forward as opposed to it being this constant negative voice in our own head that's important for our well-being. So that pager, is, that concept is very helpful. And again, this is one of these things, like, this is one way for me to think about well-being. I've also heard, you know, fairness. Oh, yeah, let's throw fairness into it. There's, like, there's a whole bunch of different things that I'm going to start to throw in as I'm developing this language. But if I don't have a language, how do I improve well-being and decrease burnout? Your book's very thoughtful. The ideas you're sharing with us are very well considered and thought through. Did you experience yourself as being curious and moving into leadership type mentality at a younger age? Or is it something you came into as you aged? Is it sort of a natural evolution of becoming someone who wants to give back to the next generation? Or do you think it was sort of built into you from the start? It's funny because we're just talking about self-acceptance. A lot of the leadership stuff for me came from first discomfort with things not working the way I thought that they should work, taking care of patients and this isn't happening, you know, what's going on? And then all of a sudden getting these leadership positions and then totally messing up, doing things wrong. And then through this process of self-acceptance or trying to learn like what I had done and how I could have been more effective, that was the process. And so, yeah, it's learning, wanting to be better and honestly not wanting to be as bad as I am right now, like wanting to just be more effective and not feel the way I do inside when I'm doing things that just feel like they're not the best approach. And then being able to help others. So thank you. The reason I was trying to get to that was I'm sort of, you know, I'm curious as to how you think in terms of how our society and indeed our world is doing it, producing leaders right now. It's not an uncommon critique to look at the last X number of decades and think, well, we just don't make leaders like we used to. And I think it's always been puzzling to me, at least, like, are, are leaders made? Are they people, you know, does society craft them and groom them in a certain way? Is it is it a moment in time that brings them forward? Or are they just, I don't know, there's just certain moments when some amazing individuals show up, you know? So I guess it's sort of a two-pronged question. Like, do you think it's sort of a nature versus nurture thing? And then societally, how do you think about the state of our current leadership class? Yeah, all of those things that you just said. And so we have tremendous opportunities. Just think within an organization, the resources that are available to leaders within the organization are quite varied. And how do you scale the development? It tends to be quite costly. Like for something like coaching, let's like step back there. I'm an executive coach and executive coaches with experience can be quite costly for an organization. It tends to be just the senior leaders. And so then how do you help to coach leaders at all levels. Do we have to have coaches for every one of them? I don't think so. Do each of us know even what coaching is? Do we have a language of how to coach our colleagues? When someone comes to me and they're burned out, do I know the difference between what a coach is and what a mentor is? 
what a teacher is and what a supervisor is? Do I know the approaches for each of those hats and the pros and cons of each of those things? And I don't think we do. And are those things things that actually we could learn at a young age that might help us understand why when dad says to me that I should do this and I don't feel right about that, maybe it's because he's acting like a supervisor or a mentor and not taking into consideration my feelings and my sense of what's going on. I think we can develop the language at all levels. We can develop the technical abilities at all levels. And as we do that, each of us then develops these tools to be able to help our own colleagues, our own family and friends, to be able to process what is really a complex and confusing world and to make sense of our own sense of like where we're at and our own sense of efficacy. I think there are a lot of great opportunities here to figure out how to teach, how to learn all these concepts, put them into practice and to scale them. And just as we were talking about burnouts and then now moving towards well-being, this is still like this wonderful time where we're learning so much and we can keep building upon things moving forward. You talked about in the book, you cited Brad Stolberg, who's been on the show before, and Brad's someone that we admire greatly. Recipe for growth is stress plus rest. <laughs> Trouble is, most people don't get the rest part. Could you just unpack that recipe for us? Yeah, right. I love that. So stress plus rest equals growth. And that's Brad's and Steve co-authors. You know, it's a wonderful recipe. And, and as you can imagine, as I'm working with physicians, these individuals, they come out of residency and fellowship and they want to publish 20 years of work within five years. They want to be chair as fast as possible. They want to do this many procedures. They're very hard driving individuals and stress is a good thing. It can help us change. We're being tweaked and having to respond and having to grow but if we keep doing that, and I see this where these individuals keep moving towards this goal, and they're not taking time to rest, to kind of step back, to process, to enjoy, to do nothing, to sleep, to you know, do all these sort of recovery, I think that's the nice thing about rest is kind of recovery, then they're not going to grow. It just remains stress. And, and as we look at the best athletes we have in the world, and even myself, now I'm not considering myself one of the best athletes, you know, we were... Yeah. I'm wearing a watch. I'm wearing a ring. It's telling me how much I sleep. It's telling me what my temperature was last night. It's telling me my heart rate. It's telling me, I mean, all these sorts of things. And I can look at this and say, geez, look at this is four nights in a row. Like I said, last night I worked until I went to bed at 4 a.m. And I, and I worked late into the ED. I know today I'm going to have to approach things a little bit differently if I'm not going to be optimal. It's just one of these great equations just to be thinking about. Yes, we can be hard driving. Yes, we can be trying to move forward and be our best. But our best means sometimes maybe you're, I don't know, sitting on the couch watching F1 racing and, you know, drinking uh, sparkling water and not thinking about anything else. That actually, for me, is a wonderful situation. <laughs> me too. So I want to go back to the rest part. It almost seems so counterintuitive to our culture, at least in the United States, where it's like work hard, play hard, be successful. As a leader, how do we start to normalize the fact that people need to take a break, people need rest, or they're not going to bring their best selves to work? I mean, it requires for us, again, this, these moments where we're stepping back and considering how things are going. How effective are we? It's like this self-auditing stuff on one hand. And on the other hand, I guess the a way of doing it is seeing as you're trying to affect the world, how effective are you being there. 
and then trying to find ways of improving. It's just one of these things as habits. I guess this is part of the checklist that needs to be at the top of the mind, which is all the to-do lists, all the things I'm processing, and then how am I recovering? And then what happens when I recover? And what happens when I'm eating this way? What happens when I'm exercising or not exercising? I mean, I can tell you that when I'm, so again, didn't sleep long last night. Um, <laughs> I know that I'm, I'm likely to be more crusty today, you know, as I woke up and had the first conversation with my wife. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not at my best. And so how can I approach this? And what are the things I can do today, even amidst a busy schedule, to be more effective? Self-audit. Yeah, it's interesting. We hear this in some of the productivity articles and stuff. It's like how you have to start, you have to sleep and you have to recover as a way to make yourself more productive. So it's almost like you can talk to yourself. You can kind of use this trick. I'm so addicted to productivity that I'm actually going to be productive at, by exercising and resting and stuff. But I really liked one of the things you said in there about like that reflecting, which totally makes sense. Kind of if you have a productivity mindset and you're trying to be successful, taking a moment to reflect on how successful you're being and are you getting the outcomes you want? And you sort of hinted that that moment of reflection is sort of this interesting gateway into rest. It's funny. What just came to my mind is, so last night, one of the patients I had used methamphetamines. And this is across the United States. We're seeing individuals using methamphetamines. And this concept in my mind, just as we're talking about, is overclocking for computers, where we're trying to like use as much energy and use as much of the RAM to get as many things done and be faster and faster. But we know that as that happens, it actually puts a toll on the computer. And as we start using like methamphetamine, I think we can all agree is maybe an overclocking of our system and something that can be bad for us. But the things that we're eating and the ways that we're acting and the sleep that we may be lacking and the relationships that we may be having, all these things can add to this sort of overclocking. And it makes sense intuitively, unless we're monitoring it, we find ourselves in a bad situation. Richard, writing a book is a transformative process. It's really difficult. It's painful. <laughs> you, you've it's, been there. Uh, it's like you were in my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to do. But one of our former guests, Dan Pink, said that all research is actually me-search. And I wonder, like, the lessons from that, that came out in your book, how they have informed or changed your personal life. Yeah, I mean, it is that. As you start to... I mean, first of all, as I, I would start to write about, for instance, something like the Kinevin framework or something like Carol Dweck's, one of the biggest things in my mind is, oh my gosh, what happens if they read this? What if I misstate this? And then I want to learn more and I want to approach things and you know, think of it from multiple different angles. And, and within there, then I'm, I'm encountering some of my own biases as we're talking about process. Like it's my way of, I have done all this analysis and now I'm putting this uh, these other points of view. It's kind of like this Freaky Friday, where I'm trying to put my, you know, where the mom and the, the daughter swap bodies. I'm trying to put myself in other individuals' positions, and that helps me to learn more. And so as I'm writing, I'm also thinking about like how individuals like you are going to read this. And then that helps me think about the way I'm thinking about things. I found it to be a very, yeah, a lot of self-learning uh, just in writing. And writing, just like coaching, is very much a way of looking at the way I'm thinking and trying to improve upon that. So I, I love that concept that you, you were talking about with Daniel Pink. One of the things I've really enjoyed about our conversation, Richard, is every time I've given you an or statement, you came back with an and response. <laughs> um, and you did it at the beginning with the lightning round, and you've done it through a variety of questions I asked you. And I actually think that's a really interesting and useful and kind of profound habit of mind. And one, I'm not sure if you're conscious that you're doing that. 
And then two, I'm curious if there's other habits of mind that you've maybe been able to become more articulate about as you've thought about them. Are there certain ways that you just kind of remind yourself to approach situations that has helped you become the leader and the person that you are now? Yeah. And that's, uh, again, that, uh, that's a practice because honestly, anytime someone says something, there is a reflexive thing that comes to mind. And I have found through just life experience that I'm often incorrect or I'm, I'm only part of the picture. And we see a lot of this as you read the news and social media and as you're having conversations with colleagues, that things are either this or that, that they're binary, you know, ones or zeros, that you either think this or you think that is something that doesn't seem right to me. I can see the errors in that sort of approach. And as you were, you were mentioning, you know, Gandhi and Dalai Lama and individuals like that, I think some of their best practices are the ability to see all sides and this idea that things are more, not dichotomous, but more dialectical, shades of grays, where a single approach can be both incorrect and correct, and that there's multiple ways of looking at that. I like this concept of having multiple boards of directors within my own head that are each looking at things, and that's how I would aspire to be, because I think that that is helpful. And I don't think that means waffling. That would be one of the things that someone, oh, geez, either you, you agree with it or not. Come on. Just tell me. Well, actually, I think that as you see the grays of things and the fact that things aren't binary, in these areas of complexity and chaos, that is quite helpful. It allows you to poke the environment and learn from the environment, see how it responds more effectively than if you close off to just one way or the other. I don't know. It's a constant practice. And you can ask my wife and my kids and my friends, and they're going to tell you that I'm, a, I'm not always and that there are many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in your profession, you would have to be, right? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've worked with surgeons and people and doctors before. Like, you don't get to waffle in the moment. You got to decide. Yeah. So. Well, in the same way that we open with the lightning round, we have a standard way of closing as well. So we'll kind of move on to that now and get you, I don't know, back to bed or off to a nap or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a dolphin. Guilty. As we've been talking, I've been sleeping with one half of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> that explains the eye twitch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I want you to just, I want you to pause for a moment and I want you to try to remember yourself as a 25-year-old and really try to bring that version of Richard into your head. And I want you to kind of imagine sitting down with that Richard and chatting over coffee. And I want you to share with us what that Richard would be saying and thinking about this version. It's a bit of a reversed <laughs> mentoring question. Right? Yeah, yeah. What is it we can learn from our younger selves that we might have forgotten? For me as a 25-year-old, really trying to find my way and my place in the world. I was a punk rock kid in high school, like radio and bands and skateboards, D-plus, C-minus student. And then in college, I turned it on and you know found some interest in science and then found some efficacy there. But in, in weird ways, as a kid not doing the accepted thing, getting C-minuses and D-plus, and then all of a sudden finding in college I'm doing the accepted thing. And then as a 25-year-old, these things are coming together, and now I'm uh, in emergency medicine, I think done with emergency medicine residency, or at least an emergency medicine residency. I think that keep looking inward at what I'm wanting to do and what's interesting to me and be authentically myself is the key thing for me. Because there were times there where I was trying to figure out how I fit into their world. And I think it's more helpful, at least for me at that time, to be understanding my own world and 
what it is that I'm wanting. And I can step back and I see this in the residents and the medical students that come to me. And they're oftentimes asking me what they should do and how helpful it is that for me to tell them what to do. I mean, I'm a 54-year-old guy. It's been, what, 25 years since I was like them? How much better would it be for me to be coaching and asking them what they would like to do and how they would like to make sense? And so I think that's what I try to do is just take me back and think about possibility within myself. That's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Where can we find more information about you and your book? <laughs> yeah. All right. So to learn more about me, you can go to the very creatively named richardwinters.com. I went out there yeah, based on my name. And so there you'll find I'm on Twitter. You'll find I'm on LinkedIn. There's the book, You're the Leader, Now What?, which I'm proud of. And I hope people read. That's the way to get to know me. Great. Richard, thank you so much. That was lovely. Really, really thank appreciate you. your time. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I appreciate you. Really fun conversation. Uh, Richard had a lot to say about decision-making, conflict, well-being, a lot of practical takeaways from someone who's doing emergency medicine at uh, Mayo Clinic. So, Bob and Meredith, I'm curious what rose to the top for you. Yeah, I think for me, it was so refreshing to hear somebody talk about leadership and give examples that wasn't from the world that we necessarily work in every day, which is the design and the tech world. And I love how he became a doctor and then realized that he wasn't being effective in certain meetings. Like he was like the expert at the medicine, but wasn't good at the business. And so he went back to school to, you know, get his master's degree and his MBA and to figure that out and then come and bring it back in, which I don't think a lot of people would necessarily do, especially after you go through that amount of education, right? Is to like keep going back and doing more. And That's a lot of education. It's a ton of education. So I think it's really cool how he's willing to go out there, gain more education and bring it back to a field that might not have that particular area of expertise and kind of spread the wealth. Bob, what did you take away? Well, as Meredith mentioned, we all talk to a lot of leaders, but it's from a creative field. And it's from a creative field that is still very much evolving. And so some of these things like checklists and how to respond in moments and, and past practices, I, our profession is still working that out. So for me, it was really interesting to hear him talk about leadership in a completely different kind of context and environment where they had these different methods to rely on. And I experienced him kind of coming from leadership almost more with a scientist mind. And then he had sort of grafted on the emotional side. And particularly when he talks about the residents and how they don't really have the emotional side developed yet. So it was so interesting to hear him talk because, again, I think he came from sort of this logical decision tree kind of model. And then I think he came from the mindset of things are complicated and he's evolved into understanding that they're complex. Whereas with a lot of the leaders I talk to in the creative professions, I think they start with everything's being complex and they later realize it's complicated and they're still trying to figure out all those methods. I just felt that was a really interesting juxtaposition and contrast to a lot of the leadership discussions that I typically have. I mean, there's definitely some great, great lines in there he had. You know, culture is the thing, brings people together. Culture equals values plus behavior. I thought was really powerful. Had this other line about best practices equals past practices. 
And I think that's always this really interesting challenge of when you're in a situation and the previous rules don't apply and unlikely things happen all the time. And so how do you, how do you recalibrate to, Oh wait, this has never happened before. I need to figure out which parts of the playbook no longer apply. And that seems really delicate. I also really did like that well-being mnemonic that he had, the pagers thing. Again, purpose, autonomy, growth, environmental mastery, relationships, and self-acceptance. And those mnemonics, man, those are great. I wish I had more of those. Super (laughs) useful. Yeah, I got that now, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of it sort of boils down to how to ask the right questions of ourselves and our colleagues. And I just think that is invaluable in life, how to question your reality because it's so easy to get sort of wrapped up in the presumed certainty that one has about this is the right way for me to live my life. This is the right direction for my career. You know, this is the right way for me to make a big decision. The best practice is by definition, past practice is a way to sort of like, wait a second, let's just kind of challenge some of the assumptions here. He also talked about self-auditing a fair bit. How are things going? You know, having that built into your inner dialogue, asking that question and determining if you need to rest or press forward, if you are, you know, growing as much as as you really want and should be. And for me personally, I think that's just uh, super useful, you know, something I can tap into on a regular basis. I'm also just really surprised that he has three pagers. And (laughs) as three designers on this podcast, how do we make his life simpler? (laughs) I was telling that one of those pages was, quote, resuscitation. I know. Oh, man. And again, it just, it puts into perspective how I think hopefully people listening to this realize like how different levels of seriousness are within our workday and how you really need to put things into perspective and Bob, you know, you've said this to me and I still, I say this a, literally a decade later is you told me once, you're like, Meredith, it's just software when we were at Pinterest, you know, you're like, it's just software. Like, this isn't that big of a deal. Like nobody's dying. Nobody's doing this. Well, in this case, Dr. Winters, like that's literally day to date for him. And so I think just hearing his stories and then, you know, going back to what you say, which I think about literally every day, is how to put things into perspective in the situation that you're in can, I think, give you more clarity in how you also lead those situations. Yeah, that piece he got to at the end about reflection, I thought was really interesting. Like he talked about us as decision making robots, and he has sort of this experimental mentality, right? I'm going to use that phrase I'm going to poke the environment and see what happens. Right. He's testing all these things out. And it was, I think, really powerful that he's like, well, I'm running all these experiments, but that means I need to take a moment to step back and evaluate how the experiments are going. Because if I never do that, I'm not learning anything and I can't build on my knowledge. And then he had this notion of, oh, it's in that it those moments of reflection when I open up the window for rest. And I thought that was useful. And you know, it did remind me, I people know I have this uh, rather powerful addiction to journaling. But, you know, journaling is the moment where I stop and reflect and ask myself what happened on during the day and what I should learn and take away from it. And that moment of reflection has just been transformative for me to the point I can't really imagine my life without it. It's one of those things that's transformed from being a habit to just being, I don't even know if it's a ritual or I, I don't even know what it is. It's like if I got to the end of my day and I didn't do that, something would feel really empty. 
yeah, there's something super powerful about just taking a moment, taking a long moment, like just taking some time to stop and ask yourself, okay, I've made all these decisions. How did that work out? What have I learned? What am I going to do different now? I like how he concluded with that advice from his 25-year-old self that, you know, he's the one at the helm. He's the one that should be reflecting and thinking what's important to me. You know, it's not just about the lessons and decision-making, but like, what am I excited about? What am I passionate about? And never losing sight of that. Yeah, I find that with young designers that I talk to, my own kids who are out of college now and trying to figure out where they fit in in the world. It's easy to get into this trap and sort of look around and try to contort yourself to fit into a spot that you see somewhere in the world. I think there's a real temptation to do that, but it doesn't lead to a gratifying or sustainable place. The harder work, but ultimately the more meaningful thing is to just figure out who you really are, you know, to embrace your unique interests and curiosities and skills and abilities, and then just lean into that and kind of go into the world and say, this is me. I can clearly represent what I'm about. And the amount of people and energy and excitement that'll come towards you is really quite profound. I don't know, it's simple advice, but it's hard. Like, just be you and the universe will welcome you. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.